oh, let me close my door before my son rolls up in here. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. Welcome, everyone. I'm Grant Oliphant. Welcome to Stronger Than This, a special podcast series of candid conversations about the moment that we're living through. This is not our regular We Can Be season. Stay tuned for that later this year, we hope. The Stronger Than This series will feature several new episodes a week, we figure. We're just having conversations with people that are recorded remotely with a quick turnaround time and with minimal editing. These episodes give a unique, unvarnished opportunity for deeper insight into the current crisis. I'm speaking with people who are not only fully engaged in thinking about what we're experiencing in the present moment, but have the capacity to look over the horizon a bit and be thinking about what lies ahead and what has to change based on what we're learning in the experience that we're currently having. Our guest today, who is perfect for this assignment, is my friend Dr. Andre Perry, who is the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. He is also a native of Pittsburgh and brings that perspective to his work, both locally and nationally. His research focuses on race and structural inequality, education and economic inclusion. He's written on urban development and education for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Nation, and in his weekly column for the Heckinger Report, He's a scholar in residence at American University and a regular contributor to MSNBC. And his upcoming book, uh, which is scheduled for release in May of this year, is titled Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. I had the privilege to read an advanced copy of that, and it is knock your socks off good. Uh, deeply personal, but manages to tell an incredibly important policy story through a deep research lens, but also a deeply personal lens. And Andre, I got to tell you, it's a magnificent piece of work. So thanks for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. It's unfortunate it has to be under these circumstances. Before we get into the heavy stuff, how are you handling all of this? How is it for you personally and how is it for you professionally? Personally, I, I have the privilege and luxury to have the ability to work from home. I have a computer. I have decent internet. My son is safe and healthy. My wife is healthy. We have the means to shelter ourselves and, and be secure. So from a personal perspective, there's some inconveniences, but by no means am I hampered by this event. Now, professionally, the value of my work has actually increased because I talk about structural inequality, and it has become woefully apparent that the reason why you see disproportionate amounts of death and sickness in Black communities especially, but in a lot of vulnerable communities, is because many of them don't have the basic necessities to withstand the inevitable crises that will impact us. And so it's sad, but my work is more relevant than ever. It's felt that way to me. And in fact, you have done some amazing writing about this recently. You point out, for example, in a recent column that you wrote that Black Chicagoans represent 29% of the city's population, but make up 70% of the COVID-19 fatalities. In Washington, Black people are 46% of the population, but 62.5% of COVID fatalities. 
Michigan, the heavily black tri-county area of Detroit has quickly become the epicenter. And I just spoke with somebody in Detroit about this yesterday, accounting for nearly 85% of the Mm. state's COVID-19 deaths. What is going on and what does it tell us about America today? It's clear that structural inequalities existed before this crisis and the pandemic had just exposed how vulnerable people are in terms of death. The expression of that vulnerability has been made clear. Many of these problems actually existed. We knew about them before, but we didn't sound the alarm. There's been an epidemic in many different communities. There's been recessions in many different communities. And when you pile on top of those tragedies in housing, in health inequality, in education inequality, you're going to get worse outcomes. And that's what we're seeing. And so it's not that black skin makes you any more susceptible to a disease because we do know that the virus does not discriminate, but our past policies have discriminated. Mm. And, and those past policies place black and brown people and, and poor folks without wealth in a position where they cannot decide to just take off work. They cannot say that I I have to shut my door to the rest of the world. Because of poverty, folks need to talk to each other, touch each other. That's the way you maximize your resources when you're poor. You share. It just becomes impossible to live when you don't have the protections of wealth. And so to get over this, we're going to have to use this acute situation in order to find long-term solutions. We know how to do this. We've done it before. We just have not done it with black and brown people. You know, when I hear this conversation happening to the extent that it happens in society right now, you hear a point of view often expressed politically, but not only this way, that this is just baked into the way society is structured. And what we're seeing is a consequence of the way societies happen. The other argument you hear is the quote-unquote personal responsibility argument. And this is the one that goes that none of what you just said matters. It's all about personal choices and the food people are eating and their decision to go to the doctor or not to. It basically blows past any idea that there are inequalities in terms of access to education or healthcare or what have you. When you say that we've dealt with this before, that we've known how to how to respond before, give us an example and what did we do? The best example of this is the Great Depression, when millions of Americans found themselves in lines looking for food, jobless, homeless, and we knew at that time there needed to be something done dramatically to get us out of the depression. In addition to that, we knew we had to create a social safety net to prevent these kind of tragedies moving forward. And what FDR did with the New Deal and legislation since put checks in hands of poor people. Mm. Um, we don't we don't look at that it, that way, but the great depression, getting out of it, was about investing in poor people. We enabled people to have homes. We rebuilt entire communities. We created new communities. 
We created this thing called Social Security. The difference is we didn't include black people. The people who have wealth today have a greater likelihood of enduring this tragedy. But those people, they were the children and grandchildren of those poor people in the 30s that did not have protection. And so we found ways to invest and prevent tragedies like this before. We just have not done it for people of color. Why don't we invest in the most vulnerable? The data are clear on this, that Black people are dying because of the conditions that policy put them in. That this age-old narrative that the conditions of Black cities are a direct result of individual failings and bad choices, that falls flat with this illness. We're putting Grubhub drivers in harm's way, people who have to work. We're asking grocery store workers. We're asking postal office workers who have a high percentage of people of color to work and to be placed in harm's way. That's not by accident. It's not by accident that Black people are disproportionately in professions that are in the forefront of the disease, healthcare workers, service workers. It's not by accident that many Black business owners don't have the cushion or the, the wealth that their counterparts have because of housing devaluation and lack of access to mainstream banks. These are not coincidences. These are choices of the privilege. So if anyone should be blamed for choices, it's the policymakers for excluding Black people from many of the social safety net programs that white folks have enjoyed over decades. We've got one, have to stop this narrative that mm. Black people are causing their own death. I mean, it, that's just ridiculous. We have got to see the tragedy that occurred before COVID and address it, or we'll be right back in the same position when the next tragedy occurs. In the last 30 years, I've been through 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, tech bubble, housing bubble, COVID. These things are not a once in a lifetime endeavor. You know, what they, how we describe this only happens once in a hundred years. Right. In the last right. 20 right. years, I've been in, in several of these things. So the point is, after every one of them, there's an opportunity to provide protection that will prevent the tragedies that shouldn't occur. People will die, but the disproportionate amount of death and, and this, the volume of death would not have happened if racism and sexism wasn't a drag on our society. You know, I'm mindful in a horrible way that there is a hard-heartedness that sometimes emerges around the policy discussion on this. And you hear people, be they the folks who lingered too long at the beach in Florida or governors who refused to issue shutdown orders, there's a an attitude that some people, quote unquote, will just have to pay the price of society continuing to function. Mm -hmm. And Oftentimes, that's old people who are particularly yeah. vulnerable to the disease. But it's also groups 
uh, and especially people of color who are being especially victimized by the illness. But there's a tendency, you know, let's face it, this is the white majority that adopts this perspective that, hey, that's not my concern, that's somebody else's problem, and it's just a price we pay for having the sort of society we do. What would you say to folks about why it's important to finally crack this nut around the ongoing repeated tragedy that causes this to replay over and over again? Why does it matter to America as opposed to just one group? I'm an educator at heart, so I'm always examining what have we learned collectively from this tragedy. And if we don't learn how interconnected we are as a society after this, I don't know what's going to teach us. This notion of when our neighbors are sick, we are vulnerable. That is true medically, and it's clear from this pandemic that because of these precautions, we we have to be mindful of our interconnectedness. But the same is true in, in terms of our economy. But the difference is that if you are privileged, that you don't feel the pain of that economy, that you you can cross a threshold where you're relatively okay. But the suppression of black and brown people economically is actually throttling the growth of the economy. The throttling of the growth of the economy is keeping us from providing the wealth and cushion for Americans to to be able to withstand this epidemic uh, better. But also, it's keeping us from finding the inventors, the scientists, the politicians, the folks who can actually find solutions instead of just blaming China or blaming individual behavior and doing all this other stuff that adds no value to getting us to a place where we can return to some semblance of normal life. You know, I, I just hope that we learn from this, that we are indeed interconnected, that I am my brother's keeper, and we have an obligation, because we're a democracy, to look after our fellow citizens and residents, potential citizens even, referring to undocumented immigrants, that we have a responsibility to look after our neighbor. And if we do not, that it could lead to the death, not only of individuals, but the death of a democracy itself. Yeah, I think it's such an important, such a hugely important issue. I This one keeps me awake at night. I also sometimes worry that the argument, the way I hear that we are all connected argument, made sometimes feels a little utilitarian. Mm-hmm. We hear that we should care about each other because the person who is driving my bus or is bringing me my food might get sick, which sort of looks at them in a functional way rather than as a human way. And I know you've looked at this from every angle. Have you been thinking about how we get people to appreciate the broader dimensions of really understanding each other's human potential in the context of a vibrant democracy and why that actually will fuel all of our success rather than representing some sort of diminishment of my privilege or my Mm. share of the pie? I do think there is a moral, some moral lessons that many Americans have to go back to. Maybe we've never learned them Mm. as a society. 
it is a moral obligation to help someone who's sick. Many faith references have some type of good Samaritan story where there's no real reason to help a person who is injured, but you do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. I worry that many of our leaders do look for some kind of pragmatic or utilitarian type of approach to solving the problem. And when we do that, we never get to the moral issue at hand. It's always a good time to do the right thing. And so I'm very interested in having a moral conversation about our, the future of our democracy. I'm hoping that we can see that there are vulnerable people in our communities. And it's the right thing to do to make sure that we empower them, that giving people a stimulus check or providing quality education, giving health care to someone is not going to rob me of an opportunity to rise. That giving will, in fact, uplift everyone. What's interesting about this pandemic, we forget that the checks we're receiving, the um, relief packages, this is a result of our tax money. <laughs> right, <laughs> that, right. Yeah. That we, we're, we're wrangling over whether or not some people should get money or this is a handout, that I don't want a handout. This is not a handout. <laughs> well, right. this is our tax money, but it's an example of what we can do collectively as a body politic when something goes wrong. We use our collective resources and we should distribute those resources based on need because you don't necessarily know when you're going to be the one in need. This problem that we're in where we're bailing out big banks, bailing out big companies and not the little man, that is also a moral dilemma. We collect taxes for this reason, but always be mindful that it's our obligation to help the most vulnerable. And right now, our taxes is not going back to them. And mm. we've got to figure out a way to compel our leaders those lessons that there is no economy without health. It's a moral lesson that we need to emerge from this tragedy. Apropos of this, there was a really interesting large section in the New York Times on Sunday about the country we need mm -hmm. as opposed to the country we are. Part of the argument it made is that we need in this moment a more activist and justice-focused government than we've had in maybe a generation, but it harkened back to the advances of the progressive era, the Great Depression, moments where we actually have believed in a different approach to government. But that notion that taking tax money and using it to help poor people has been absent from government for quite a while. And I'm wondering what you think needs to happen as we come out of COVID-19. And I, nobody knows yet what coming out of it will look like because it's, I don't, it's not as though somebody's going to flip a switch and the economy instantly turns back on. There's going to be a whole long, complicated process by which this happens until there's a vaccine. And even then, it may be complicated. But what do we need to be thinking differently about mm. government in order to address the sort of issues that you're raising in our conversation? I think back to campaign finance reform 
um, I think about the reasons why we don't have the right perspective about investments in the poor, because wealthy people are using the resources to tilt government in their direction. And they do so by contributions to politicians. And so we need to have a serious discussion about the nature of the campaign finance reforms in general, but the ability of corporations to contribute to politicians, because it's clearly influencing their decision. There is no CEO that if he or she was placed in the position of a grocery store worker would complain about $1,200 going into their pocket. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no, No politician. So it's clear that they are so far removed from the day-to-day activities. They're clearly in conversation with people who see their wealth as the primary thing they need to protect. Not a country, not a neighborhood, not a person, but their wealth. And that, for me, has to change because I still believe in the power that we have collectively, that come November, we have choices to make about who truly represented us in a time of crisis. However, I also know there are many wealthy people that will make a different argument with money. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it is that back and forth, but it's becoming harder and harder for the average person's voice to be heard in the halls of Congress. Andre, is there any, as you've been speaking to people and and reflecting on what's happening, have you heard any stories that especially move you? Uh, let me tell you, <laughs> it, it, the closing of schools it really showed how terrible a teacher and educator I really am. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> so, but I love hearing my son's teacher talk about how soon they will get back together. And and it's simplistic, but to hear my son's teacher talk about, we will get through this Mm. and seeing my son smile, man, it's, it's a joy. It gives me hope. Whenever I talk about tragedy, I'm always looking for the doers, always looking for the people who, in spite of what's going on, find a way. It's those teachers it's those bus drivers, it's right. the, those grocery store clerks that you think that they are yelling and screaming, but they're doing their job with grace, right. you know, with compassion, with love. Every time I, I listen to my son's teacher, I go in a grocery store on occasion and I get greeted, I'm reminded there's grace in this world. You know, I was going to, as we wrap up, ask you, given that you've seen this repeated pattern happen, particularly around vulnerable people, what makes you optimistic that we can still address this problem when we have failed to so many times before? Every time we get a step closer, I see so many committed social justice folks, people who don't even consider themselves social justice types, they see the inequities, they see the death, and they're saying, 
you know, enough. Mm. We need to get through this together. And you hear that term thrown around quite a bit. We're all in this together. But being in this together means recognizing the suffering that some people are going through. And I actually hear and see people recognizing the suffering. Now, you have a blamer in chief who does (laughs) not want to recognize anything except himself. He does not want to hold himself responsible. But I see a lot of people saying, you know, enough. And Mm -hmm. so I'm hopeful. But I do know after every tragedy, we seem to take just a small step forward, sometimes too bad. But, you know, I, I have to keep focusing on those steps forward. Andre, we're stronger than what? You've done We Can Be before, and you know that we end with a thought about what we can be. But what are we stronger than? The easy response is we're definitely stronger than COVID-19, but we're also stronger than the structural racism that's also killing people. That's great. From your lips to God's ears. What I take away from this conversation, Andre, is that past policies have created the disparities that we're experiencing now. They're not the result of something people are doing wrong. We've actually shown we can change these policies in the past. You gave the Great Depression as an example of that. But you also point out that those past attempts have generally also excluded black and brown people and that it is time finally to begin to address these disparities that past policy has created and to stop leaving out the most vulnerable. You ask us to reflect on what are we learning and that you want us to recognize how truly interconnected we are, that the future and health of our democracy depends on our capacity to create a more just society And you also point us to the moral dimensions of that. This is not purely a utilitarian argument. I loved your use of the phrase that it's always a good time to do the right thing. And you sound out a note of optimism finally by saying that every time we go through one of these crises, we do get a step closer. And I believe that, by the way, as long as we work for it. Andre Perry, I really want to thank you for being one of those doers who is pushing us to a better place. It's been really a joy talking with you. Yes. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. And you have an amazing way to summarize my words. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I enjoy listening. 